Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Mike Volkov brings 35 years of legal experience. Matt Kelly is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Jay Rosen is Mr. Monitor who knows his way around the culture of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Cordery Compliance in London, rounds out this top group of compliance practitioners. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This episode of Everything Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong looks at the EDPB approval of the UK draft data protection adequacy, Jay Rosen on the future of compliance, Jonathan Marks, the SEC and ESG, Matt Kelly takes an interesting look at what is third-party risk. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with the Everything Compliance Gang for our live stream edition. We have from East to West, Jonathan Armstrong from Corey Compliance, Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and coming to us from the world headquarters of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Marks in an undisclosed location, and Jay Rosen in It Never Rains in Sunny Southern California. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you, Tom. Welcome. So, Mr. Armstrong, we had, I think, some significant news out of the EU slash UK around uh, the UK and data privacy. I know you have written about this on the quarterly website. What can you tell us? Yeah, so I think it's good news in terms of data transfer. So, as a recap, uh, people will remember that the UK has left the EU and Brexit causes all sorts of challenges from a uh, data privacy point of view. And we're at least resolving some of these challenges. There is currently a temporary data deal between the EU and the UK, which expires at the end of this month. And there's some possibility that data could go uh, off a cliff or the data uh, pr pr transfer rules could be challenging at the end of this month. And the idea is to replace this temporary deal with what's called an adequacy decision, which should be a little more permanent. And the adequacy decision is proposed by the European Commission. It's then reviewed by the European Data Protection Board. It goes in front of EU member states. And then there's a possible advisory process from the European Parliament. And we're well along the road now. The European Commission have launched their uh, draft opinions. And this week, the European Data Protection Board effectively endorsed uh, those adequacy decisions with some reservations. The reservations are about the uh, activities of the security services and about an immigration uh, exception mainly. And that seems to me to be the right result. I think that um, the uh, UK regime is similar enough, clearly, to the EU regime to get the benefit of an adequacy decision. So the next big question really is timing and will we get any other significant objections? As far as objections are concerned, then I expect that some uh, at the European Parliament level will object to the deal. 
and they will try and rehearse the same arguments as before about the activity of the security services in the UK. But for context, um, the law does not require some gold standard that's over and above the behaviour of other EU member states. And for example, in January, the French data privacy regulator found that the French government had acted unlawfully when it surveilled uh, citizens of France uh, to check that they were uh, complying with uh, COVID regulations by drone. And in Indeed, the uh, French regulator then expressed concern that it could say that the French government had acted unlawfully, but was unable to punish the French government because the French government had removed the possibility of sanctions. So, uh, so in, in most respects, it, it should be relatively plain sailing for the adequacy decision. But timing, I think, will be a challenge. Obviously, this has to go now to nation states. They have a lot on their agenda at the moment, including the, let's just say, hesitant rollout of vaccines across the EU. That has not gone well. And adequacy, I think, will be somewhat low down the agenda. So I think the, the practical steps for compliance officers are, well, first of all, uh, you'll still need to do this double due diligence test. So that will include looking at where your suppliers host data. That will include you know, those across the enterprise, but also those who host compliance solutions for you, like your helpline. You should assume, I think, that the temporary data deal could uh, expire as planned at the end of this month. I don't think the adequacy decision will go through its final processes until June. So we do have a gap there, which could be covered by an extension to the temporary deal, but could mean that there are uh, challenges with, with data in between. And obviously, if you can, um, even on a short-term basis, restrict data flows, that might be a good idea as well. So I think there are practical steps that businesses uh, can take to protect themselves. We've a bit of an uncertain future. And the one last thing I would say is that even if this deal is permanent, even if there is a permanent adequacy decision, it will be challenged. We know that Max Schrems challenged the adequacy decisions for the US for both Safe Harbor and for Privacy Shield uh, successfully. Uh, Schrems has said that he is considering what to do. It might well be that he will not challenge any UK adequacy decision, but even if he doesn't, others will. So we're in for, I suspect, another two or three years of uncertainty as far as data transfer is concerned. Matt, do you have a question for Jonathan? Uh, yeah, I do. I desperately want to know that I heard this correct. The French were enforcing COVID restrictions by drone. Do we, do we have any details on that? Because I, I think that is both awesome and terrifying at the same time. Yeah, apparently they were uh, yeah, running drones with cameras around Paris, uh, I believe, and making sure that people weren't going for unnecessary walks, et cetera, et cetera. And the, there were complaints of the French data privacy authorities who found out that that was uh, unlawful. 
Wow. A little bit of big brother, and, and I would have expected that in China. And here it is right in Paris. That's just yeah. quite a thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Matt Kelly, what is on your mind? Uh, so on my mind today is third-party risk, everybody's favorite subject in corporate compliance. And uh, it's on my mind because earlier this week, a software firm by the name of Prevalent which helps with uh, third-party risk management challenges and sells technology and software along those lines. Uh, Prevalent had published a study on third-party risk, and the numbers were quite interesting. Um, I won't bombard you with too many statistics, but I'll give you a few telling ones. Um, 87% of the survey respondents, and there were about 150 people, uh, 87% had said that they are assessing their third parties to assure that those third parties do not introduce risks to our business that could negatively affect us, which is a fancy way of saying cybersecurity risk coming up from our supply chain and biting us on the rear end. 87% are now monitoring uh, third parties for that kind of threat. And that is interesting because, uh, number one, it is even more than the number of people who said we monitor third parties for compliance purposes. 60% said we're monitoring our third parties for data privacy or some other sort of cybersecurity regulation. Uh, but 87% were saying, no, this is a business threat. So that's why we are monitoring our third parties. Now, I'm torn because on one hand, I want to say, yay, that's awesome. Now we get it that third party risk is a business necessity and not just a compliance. We got to do this. On the other hand, there were some other statistics in the prevalent report that I think a lot of ethics and compliance officers might find a bit troubling. Uh, for example, 39% of them said that they do not currently track anti-corruption risk among their third parties, even though they should. So, I mean, they knew that they should, but they weren't doing that. Um, meanwhile, 88% of them were tracking cybersecurity risk. Uh, 73%, I think, were tracking privacy risk. And I'm looking at those numbers, and I'm thinking, in what world are 40% of large companies not tracking anti-corruption, even if they should? Um, and that really got to, I think, the, the nub of what's interesting about the prevalent report, is that this report surveyed 150 or so people, 76% of whom are from IT security or cybersecurity somehow. So my big questions are these. I, I have a couple of big questions, really. Uh, if we went back to those same companies and found the ethics and compliance people in those companies, not the IT security people, and we asked them the same question, would we get the same numbers? Would we get 40% of ethics and compliance people saying we don't perform due diligence uh, or third-party risk management on our third parties for anti-corruption risk, we don't do any of that, even though we should. 40% of ethics and compliance people would say that. I, I find that hard to believe. So where I'm really going with all of this and what I thought was really interesting about the prevalent survey is that we have two different groups, IT security people and ethics and compliance people, using the exact same words, third parties, due diligence, risk, and they're using it to describe very different phenomena, very different actual things. If you go to the cybersecurity people and say due diligence on third parties, they're thinking privacy, they're thinking supply chain disruption. 
Uh, one out of five of these people said they had already, within the last 12 months, suffered a operational disruption thanks to one of their third parties just in the last year. So it's a big deal. But we have ethics and compliance people using the exact same phrases to mean something very different. And I think this it gets to a question that is going to be a bigger and bigger thing. How do we get a more unified approach to third-party risk management where all of that comes together? Because I suspect what the board of directors does not want is a steady stream of people from the risk assurance function giving them a report on here's our third-party risk management and we mean IT security. Then the next one comes in, here's our report on third-party risk management. We mean ESG stuff. I haven't even talked about ESG yet, but I will. And then a third one comes in and said, here's our third-party risk management report for anti-corruption. And the boards, I don't think, like they don't want that to know all of that. They want to know, do we have proper governance over our supply chain so that we can advance on our business objectives? That's it. That's all they want to know. They want to know that it's handled. Now, if various things are not being handled ideally, then they could do a deep dive into one of the third party risks. But I think that there might be a struggle here because this is not the first time I have seen cybersecurity and ethics and compliance communities talking about third parties using the exact same vocabulary, meaning very different things. And I suspect they're coming to very different conclusions about their risk management posture. Um, but this is not going to go away. And I had mentioned ESG. Uh, so this prevalence survey also said a lot of people are not tracking human slavery risks or forced labor risk, even though they know they should. Um, the Securities and Exchange Commission is clearly, now that Gary Gensler has been confirmed as the chair and the Democrats have a majority, they are going to advance new ESG requirements and disclosures for companies. You're going to need to get that from your supply chain somehow. So that is a third dimension of third-party risk. And as the that boat in the Suez Canal reminded us, sometimes you actually have supply chain risks just about your supplies. Sometimes they're stuck in the Nile and or in the, uh, the Suez Canal, and you need to figure out how are we going to get um, emergency supplies and substitutions into our supply chain. So we have this big agglomeration of third-party risks, we have various groups redocumenting in various ways the third-party risk management, and they're all taking their own bite at the apple. Um, and I'm wondering, how do we get past that? And what's the technology for it? What's the reporting for it? What are the alerts for ethics and compliance and risk managers on a practical basis to know you've got something to zero in on who is in charge of this, whether that's a risk officer or a CISO or a compliance officer. So I, I love the prevalent report, not because of what it told me, because that was interesting enough, but more for all of the other questions about third party risk management that it kind of called into a very sharp relief. So that's what's on my mind. And I don't have a good answer for it as just it yet again underlines this is the problem of the 2020s that is coming to a company near you soon. Jonathan Marks, you have a question or comment for Matt? Yes, I, I do have a comment. Um, I don't know if you can hear me. If you can hear me. Not. A little choppy. We 
may have lost Here, No, I got it. Uh, here's, here's, here's my comment, Matt. Th those are fantastic comments and very perceptive. What, what I, what I will tell you is, is that we're seeing it in practice as well. Yeah. I talk to folks all the time and I say, you know, tell me about your third party risks and tell me, you know, what you're doing to understand and control your third party risk. And they said, Jonathan, don't worry about it. We got to cover. We just did a SOC one report on, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Wait, time out. That, that is, that is not what I'm talking about. Um, and they said, well, what are you talking about? SOC two? I go, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. And so I think that there's, there is a lot of confusion, you know, as we kind of meander our way through this. And I think it needs to be resolved because I, I, I almost see some duplicative efforts and I almost seeing this, this siloed type of activity in organizations whereby if you don't get on the same page and understand what, to your point, what the supply chain is or the governance around the supply chain, I think companies are going to, they're going to, they're, they're not going to be as efficient as they should be. And they might start missing things. Yeah. And I, I would say, um, the GRC vendors out there, they see this, they see this issue and they're, you know, they're thinking they can make some money off it. So I won't name any particular companies here on this uh, webinar, but I think if everybody looks around, you've seen that there have been a couple of very big mergers uh, in the last couple of weeks. And uh, over the last couple of months, there are a lot of what I will call hard GRC from the cybersecurity world coming into the softer GRC of ethics and compliance and anti-corruption. And they're trying to do a big roll up to become this uh, vendor of third party risk assurance and trust uh, capability. And then they're going to sell that capability to you, the, the listener and the viewer here. Like that is clearly coming. That is the uh, private equity money and the technology people seeing where the puck is going to be. And they're skating to that. Uh, so I'm interested to see where this is all going to go. But Jonathan, where you're talking about, you know, there are duplicative efforts or maybe there are some efforts that are better than others and you stitch them together, but you don't know that you got a hole in the quilt. Um, that's the kind of thing that I'm, I'm still very worried that we're going to have that for a while yet. Jonathan Marks, uh, what is on your mind? Well, keeping along with the ESG theme, you know, I was the one that said before, that's great that we're doing this, you know, from a sustainability perspective, I believe it's something that should be done. Um, but I'm also very concerned about the other areas that I think we need to keep, you know, keep our eye on the ball with, for example, you know, financial statement fraud and the like, and those types of disclosures. Kind of interesting, you know, the SEC issued a risk alert, um, and I'm going off of memory here, but the risk alert was really looking at some of the um, observe investment advisors, registered investment companies, and some others, and they had a whole list of things that they came out with, you know, with regards to information around, you know, ESG and and some of the control weaknesses and some of the failures that they perceived, you know, in their in their program. And then it kind of reminded me going back to, you know, enforcement on the company side, you know, and what should companies be doing? You know, I know that they're working on a framework. Um, I, I hope that that comes sooner than later because maybe that'll alleviate some confusion. But I haven't seen a draft of one. If you guys have, that's great. I, I, I'd like you to share it with me. But I started to think about you know some of the things that companies should start to be doing now should start to do now with regards to you know ESG, um, and then you know sort of piggybacking off of what happened with Cheesecake Factory, you know with regard to the COVID related disclosures, um, you know, and so you know. 
I, I actually listed out some suggestions and I'm willing to hear more if anyone has any thoughts. But I think a lot of this, I remember when I started down the path of sustainability back in 2007, you know, when people were talking about sustainability and we're talking about disclosures and environmental disclosures, you know, and things of that nature. But, um, you know, a lot of this, I think, is probably already being done in companies. So, you know, people ask all the time, you know, well, what should we be doing? Well, someone needs to be accountable for all this. I think that's first and foremost. Um, I think the other things is, you know, you need to educate people, not only at the board level, but throughout, because everyone needs to be on board with what, you know, ESG is. And then the thing that I'm really thinking about, and I actually listed all these out on my blog, um, you know, the other thing I keep really thinking about is where does this really belong? You know, is it, does it belong in compliance? You know, how does internal audit get involved? You know, how do others within the organization get involved from a monitoring perspective? You know, if you, if you ascribe to the lines theory where you have, you know, management compliance and internal audit, um, you know, how, what are the roles for each one of those? And, and then what's, what's the role at the board level? Um, you know, what should the board be thinking about when you go through all of this? And then from a disclosure perspective, you know, the other thing that I always worry about with any of this is folks over-promising and under-delivering. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, the next thing you know, you have a lawsuit. So I started to become more sensitized to some of the commercials that were on, you know, TV. And I'm sure we saw many of these, you know, Mercedes-Benz announced, I think, by 2022 that I think most of their factories were going to be powered by wind. You know, when you saw the Mercedes logo and, you know, that was a big windmill um, you know, and then you have Amazon with their orders of electronic vehicles, and they actually put real hard numbers in there. So, you know, I always wonder. You know, sort of the conservative side of me always says, "Well, I don't know how you, I don't, I don't know how you get there or how you do that." But I think you better be really sure before you start making those statements to the public, especially if you're a publicly traded company. So, you know, again, I think there needs to be some focus here, and um, you know, I, I think the other message here is that again, you know, don't let this distract you. From other key risks. I think, you know, if this is a risk that goes within your, you know, your top 10 or your top 15 within your company, you have to make sure that um, someone's held accountable for all of this. And then again, you know, where does this sit? Um, I still keep, th- again, I still, I'm mentioning it again, because it's still, I, I, does it, does it belong in compliance? Does it belong in audit? You know, is it, does it belong with the risk committee? Like, where does this thing sit? So, Jonathan, uh, Matt touched on this with the uh, confirmation of Gary Gensler uh, to the SEC. Uh, He has made clear that this is a priority for himself and for the SEC. Um, Do you see any potential FCPA, excuse me, uh, SEC enforcement around ESG disclosures, or would you see them um, focusing more on traditional uh, accounting uh, risk or accounting fraud? I think they came out when they talked when they started talking about this, at least from what I read, what's available out there. They said they were not gonna they were only gonna comment on what was actually, you know, what the actual requirements that are actually out there now. And there really hasn't been a framework. So, you know, with Gensler and his, you know, his reputation from being, you know, a little bit harder on enforcement, which is great to see, you know, those those related disclosures, I think, are going to have to be formulated. I think this is an opportunity for companies to watch who the fast, who the who the first ones out of the gate are, um, you know, and who the fast followers are and kind of learn from those, you know, like any other any, any other change. But um, uh, I, I don't know that I have a really great answer. So, Jonathan, we have our first international question on everything compliance from Cecilia 
Belouz Gunkel, who is the executive director of the Circle of Compliance in Paris. And she sees um, online clothing shops uh, putting their values up on billboards and uh, without really anything to back these claims up. Is that the kind of thing that the SEC uh, might look at, or are they looking for uh, financial dis- or disclosures in Ks and Qs? I, I don't know. I, I really don't. I, I honestly don't know. I think it's a I think it's a really great question and it's very perceptive. Um, you know, I, I don't know. That's why I mentioned these commercials. You know, I'm just wondering, you know, how far this is, going to. you know, what the, you know, no pun intended, what the plume of all this is going to be. You know, if you have some level of toxicity within an organization, you know, what's the plume of all of this? And so, you know, is it is it billboards? Is it ads on television? I mean, you know, I think I think it could be. I think it really could be, and that's why I think everyone should approach this with some, you know, with some with some caution. Look, I applaud any organization out there that wants to do the right thing for the environment. That's fantastic, um, you know, um, and 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 you know, having social responsibilities as well, you know, and having governance around all of that certainly is really really important. Based on, you know, we started like like I said, I started this down this path back in two thousand and seven. Um, and, and, you know, it didn't get a whole lot of traction. It's getting more and more, which is fantastic. I think due to the media and, and, and social media and the like, but I'm just, I'm a little concerned right now from an organizational perspective as to what you actually put out there and, you know, what you say and what you do. And, um, you know, I think Cecilia, I think it's a great question. I think, you know, buckle up and let's see what happens. Matt, you have a comment for Jonathan? I do, uh, talking a bit about uh, SEC enforcement here, I suspect that this is going to take a rather uh, plain, drab approach and kind of nuts and bolts at first. Uh, The one group that has probably made, within the SEC, that has made the the most clear statements about what ESG thinks we would enforce uh, is the Division of Regulatory Examinations, which has said that it will be looking at your business continuity risks relevant to climate change. So if you are a financial firm and all of your data centers are in Texas and it has a snowstorm and there's no power, or you are based in uh, the West Coast somewhere and your office is burned to the ground, what is your plan to keep providing service to customers? Which is an actual rule that you must have if you are a financial services firm. And that's where it's going to be. It's not sexy. It's not intriguing. It's nuts and bolts. But it is one tangible way that the SEC might look at um, ESG disclosures. But it's really it's the boring climate change business continuity stuff first. Uh, You might get into more about investment funds that say they uh, only invest in ESG and they raise a bunch of investor capital and then they're dumping money into like Exxon or something, or are they investing in Tesla? Is Tesla ESG or not? Because it makes electric cars, but it's a lot of pollution to make them. Those are the kind of questions that I think the SEC enforcement folks are struggling with right now. But um, when they do move forward, I think it's going to be some pretty kind of actions at first. It's not going to be very interesting to most of us. Jonathan Armstrong, do you have a question or comment for Jonathan Marks? Yeah, and a bit of both, and picking up Cecilia's comments, I think, really. the uh, 
I think where we are seeing regulation of some of these claims and comments is actually in good old-fashioned fair trading laws and advertising laws. In the UK, for example, we've had a whole raft of enforcement <coughs> around green claims by the Advertising Standards Authority, which is a sort of quasi-regulator that people often forget. And we've also had people make all sorts of uh, unsubstantiated claims about things that were better for the environment. So there's one horrific case, for example, over the no doubt very exciting world of bed manufacture, where people had concerns about sleeping on beds that had been manufactured in Bangladesh and in low-wage countries, and an entrepreneurial individual set up a factory in the UK uh, he bought a two-bedroomed house and imported 48 people who were held in conditions of slavery in that two-bedroomed house. He paid them £10 a day so that people could feel good about having a bed that was made in the UK rather than in a, a, a poorer country. And, and rightly, the uh, police in that case uh, investigated and he was, he was prosecuted. But it's, it's a really difficult situation, isn't it? Because a lot of people are making these claims uh, of, you, you know, stuff that's kinder to the planet or kinder to people or kinder to the environment. But often their evidence is not substantial. And particularly when we talk about all of these issues of uh, lack of ability to audit manufacturers and the supply chain properly, I think some of these claims are going to come back to haunt corporations unless they can get evidence to back them up. So, Jay Rosen, what is on your mind? Thanks, Tom. Um, my affiliated monitors colleagues, Don Stern and Eric Feldman, recently held a special two-part series with former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Uh, in part one, which dropped on April 7th, they spoke about the past, present, and future of compliance and in part two, which I'm going to talk about, which is released on April 21st, they turn their focus on independent monitoring. People have some misconceptions about monitoring. Most companies don't particularly welcome having a monitor. They view it as intrusive. They view it as, in some cases, unnecessary. At Affiliated Monitors, we've done FCPA cases, but that is such a small fraction of the use of monitoring solutions. Monitoring can be used at a municipal level and with case use cases ranging from utility companies to school boards and for case, different cases that arise. It could also be at the attorney general level and consumer protection cases, and then in the federal government. Just about every federal agency has a suspending and debarring official that ensures that the federal acquisition rules are met. And in many cases, the majority of cases of administrative agreements that settle such cases such as deferred prosecution agreement. And again, a monitor is required to ensure that the company is doing what they're saying that they're doing. Historically, prosecutors, including the Department of Justice, are not necessarily focused on what happens after there's a conviction. If you're a prosecutor, you get the result and you move on to your next investigation. But what happens to the company? Does it really get the message that it has to make changes? Are prosecutors really more focused on what happens after the conviction? And if so, why? 
The first question that we need to ask is, how do you determine whether there's a need for a monitor? And that really focuses on the issue, which is the purpose here shouldn't be punitive or the monitor is not a form of punishment, at least not intended to be a form of punishment. It's supposed to be perspective. And the second question that we'll ask is, what's the scope of responsibilities of the monitor? A company, <clears throat> a company may have made a mistake in one area, but do we, give them, do we give the monitor authority over that whole area, or do we broaden the authority of the monitor? Next, what you need to look at is the benefit, if any, going forward, and how does the Department of Justice stay involved? Rod believes that there's both a perspective and retrospective aspect there. In terms of going forward, the monitors often are required to file a regular report, which gives the department an opportunity to review the report and ensure that a company is complying with the terms of the resolution agreement. The other thing that the process does, and this is really highlighted in the Ben Sikowski memo, is that it holds out the prospect for our company after they have been targeted in a criminal investigation to reform their conduct and an opportunity to avoid a monitor by changing the corporate compliance policies and changing the culture and oftentimes changing leadership. The Bensikowski memo really highlights that the importance of changing the corporate culture and of evaluating remedial measures taken by the company. And we think that this is a tremendous benefit to prosecutors because it ensures that the remedy comes not just after the case has been resolved, but during the investigation and remediation itself. We're not quite sure that companies as a whole really have absorbed this yet. The Bensikowski memo says to companies that it really does matter from the time of the incident to the time of the resolution what a company does. And that's where most of the opportunity for remediation takes place and spending the money and the time and effort to assess and evaluate your ethics and compliance program and take a look at what failed, what didn't work, and what allowed this to happen. How can we tweak our internal controls, our messaging, strengthen our corporate culture, and demonstrate to the Department of Justice that you don't need a monitor? So what advice would you give a company for better or for worse that it's going to get a monitor, but they have some ability to negotiate control over the scope and the level of specificity? One of the criteria should be experience in monitoring. Many former officials and practitioners become monitors on one-off cases and unfortunately, they've never been a monitor before. In those cases, they really don't know how to monitor. They lack the skill set. They may have subject matter expertise, but hiring someone who knows how to do the monitoring is much more efficient. It's going to cost less money in the long run, and there could be more focus on trying to fix the company and remediate. Second is to avoid monitors that have a scorched earth approach. Ask your prospective monitor what they see their role as, and if the role is more problems, and if they see if they're doing the bad thing, then that's not a good answer. The role is to determine whether or not the company is in compliance with the agreement as written, and you want to the scope of the sanctity of that scope to be maintained. The discussion next turned to pandemic. Rod stressed that the Department of Justice has made clear since last March that they intend to be aggressive in pursuing cases of misuse of congressional funding. And for companies that have received funding, they are particularly vulnerable. Number one, because there was a fair amount of ambiguity when the money was released, and to some extent, chaos early on as to how the money could be spent changing rules. And so companies need to make sure they've got their I's dotted and their T's crossed. 
And number two, we anticipate we'll see a flood of whistleblower complaints because of the ambiguity in the rules. And because of ways companies have used the money, we anticipate there will be lots of key TAM cases in the coming years. And so for companies that want to protect themselves against that sort of thing, they ought to be in the business right now of conducting reviews of how they spend COVID-related funds and making sure that they have a documentation process that demonstrates the spent money in ways that were approved at the time and that they showed good faith. Companies that do the best that do this will be best positioned to head off either enforcement actions or deter whistleblower complaints in the future. Finally, the podcast concluded with some key takeaways. Eric started off first and said, number one, avoid a monitor. It can be done. And it seems funny for a monitor to say avoid a monitor, but given the weighing of benefits and costs and the ability of a company to demonstrate that it has strengthened its compliance program and its corporate culture, there's an opportunity to do so here. Secondly, if you do have to have a monitor, make lemonade from lemons. In fact, one of our clients, a big company, called the project of our monitorship Project Lemonade. Companies should take advantage of it and use the monitor as an opportunity to get focus and resources on compliance within their company. And Rod picked up on Eric's first point to avoid a monitor, but said that the goal of the policy really is to drive constructive change. And so companies can avoid a monitor even after wrongdoing occurs by changing corporate leadership and culture and by improving internal controls and compliance programs. By demonstrating that their programs will deter future conduct, that's the sort of thing, as Eric mentioned, and it can be done proactively before a company gets into trouble or even after it gets into trouble. So they'll be best positioned to make the pitch to the department about the ultimate resolution. This is a wonderful two-part podcast, and as always, we'll provide the link in today's show notes. Back to you, Tom. Jonathan Marks, you have a question or comment for Jay? No, Jay, I think those are great comments. And, you know, I think it's great that Eric and Rod had that conversation, and I'm looking forward to viewing both parts. I do have a question for you, though, and, you know, everybody else out there. You know, the monitorship, sometimes the reason that people don't like them is because you're now in their kitchen. And there's a big emotional aspect to being, you know, you know to this whole process. And I, I just want, I want you to comment, if you can, or anyone, you know, you know, when it says to hire, you know, when you talk about hiring a monitor that sort of has been there and done that, I also think you need to hire a monitor that has that sort of that emotional intelligence that understands that, you know, this is a very trying time for the individuals that remain. And it's also a very trying time for, you know, the future of the company. And if you, if you can't understand that and ring fence that in the beginning, that's usually where things go off the rails. Yeah, I I think you really hit the nail on the head, Jonathan. Um, One of the things that tends to happen sometimes in these situations is that people go for a brand name, right? That they want a monitor who used to work at SDNY or they want somebody, you know, um, who was a former DAG. And as I said in my comments earlier, you might get these people and they get the monitorship and the next thing they do, they call somebody like us and say, hey, we've never done a monitorship before. Can you help us out? So there really is a, a need. Um, you will get a big payment if you go with folks who have done this before. And it doesn't have to be affiliated monitors, but try to find a monitor who's been in the space, 
who has a light touch, who understands how mission critical this is. And as I said, you can't come in like a bull in a china shop. You really have to understand that um, companies want to talk, companies want to get better. And by bringing in an independent third party, you give yourself the best chance to succeed. So, gentlemen, we are now at uh, rants and shout outs our fan favorite. So I hope everyone's got a good one today. We're going to start back across the pond with uh, hopefully a little bit longer one that we're all anticipating, Jonathan Armstrong. Well, thanks, Tom. Uh, I wanted to, uh, it's the funeral of uh, Prince Philip tomorrow, and I wanted to give a, a, a tribute to him, I think, in terms of a life well lived, really. And I think some people have seen Prince Philip in later life, but uh, have forgotten his earlier life and the sacrifices he made then. He was exiled from Greece, aged just 18 months, in a cot made out of a fruit box. And when the war started in uh, 1939, he joined the Navy, aged 18, um, this was a Navy, the Merchant Navy and the Royal Navy combined, suffered 81,000 deaths, 81,000 sailors died. And of course, the numbers were equally horrendous on, uh, in, in, in terms of the US's commitment and Japan and Germany and the other nations involved. He served illustriously during the war in the Mediterranean and in the Pacific. And he kept in the Navy after the war, including in roles training the next generation of sailors uh, for the Cold War. And he left the Navy only in 1952 when he, uh, when, when the Queen ac acceded to the throne. He left at the rank of commander. He was patron, president, or a senior member of 780 organizations during his lifetime. Uh, he made uh, two. Uh, he made twenty-two thousand official solo visits, in addition to those that he made with the Queen, and uh, even more than Tom Fox. He made five and a half thousand speeches uh, in that uh, in that time. He what uh, one that's a little more personal to me. He was the chair of the Duke of Edinburgh Award, which tries to take. Um, kids at school and make them experience various challenges. And there's been some very moving stories about less able children who were, uh, who, whose life was changed by that Duke of Edinburgh Award, uh, Paralympic athletes, for example, who wouldn't leave the house until they were pushed by their school or people close to them to do that award. And just finally, there's a very touching story that, uh, that we've had over here about um, Prince Philip's visit to the White House in 1979. Now, of course, uh, he was a prince, not an angel, and he uh, said things that were unfortunate from time to time. But uh, one person who, who sort of leapt to his defense was Linwood Restray, one of the butlers at the White House who was uh, or still is an uh, African 
American uh, a, a butler, a retired butler now, who had obviously not been treated well by some visitors to the White House. But he remembers an episode of Prince Philip uh, stood in a room looking at the art collection alone and the two butlers came and offered him a drink and he said he'd have a drink on condition that he could serve the butlers and not vice versa because they'd had a hard, long day with the uh, royal party being in the White House. So um, rest in peace, Prince Philip, a life full of adventure and a life well lived. Uh, I would say, Matt, you've got a tough act to follow, but I think we all actually we all do. Well said and well done, Mr. Armstrong. Matt Kelly. Uh, yeah, I, I cannot uh, fill that kind of uh, shoes. I have a very different uh, rant, I suppose, a pretty weird one. Uh, I am here to talk about Hometown International. I don't know if anybody has heard of this yet, but that is the sandwich shop in Paulsboro, New Jersey that is owned by a publicly traded penny stock. Uh, so this is a publicly traded sandwich shop in Paulsboro, New Jersey, that uh, in recent weeks, the wackadoos online on Reddit or whatnot have bid up the market value of this sandwich shop publicly traded business to $100 million. Now, this the, the, the sole asset, the sole property is the sandwich shop. Uh, which made $14,000 last year, uh, and it is located right next to the high school of Paulsboro, New Jersey. The owner of the shop, uh, whose name is actually Paul, I won't give his full name here, partly because I don't remember it, but uh, he is a renowned wrestler, and he is a part-time coach for the wrestling team at the high school. And I was looking through the 10K that the hometown had filed this week, and they included the detail that in the rear of the sandwich shop, they have space dedicated for wrestling practice and other physical sports. So this is a $100 million market cap business. That is a sandwich shop that made 14 grand that runs a fight club in the back. And by the way, they put in the 10K that they have wrestling and fight clubs in the back. Am I the only one who knows that the first rule of fight club is you don't talk about fight club? <laughs> And here it is in the 10K. Um, so I like uh, more power to them. I, I like I said, I'm not quite sure that this is a rant, but I think it does point to a certain level of uh, total nonsense and hysteria in the penny markets, uh, penny stock capital markets these days. And uh, I, you, I don't know what to say. A hundred million dollars for a sandwich shop, which, by the way, I pulled up their balance sheet. It lasts no intangible assets. So clearly they have no secret sauce because that's what it would be. So I don't know what the appeal of the sandwiches are. I hope that they are going to do better business in 2021. And uh, I don't know. That's all I got. Jonathan Marks. Matt, I'll tell you, they have great chicken salad there. Do they? I wondered as a New Jersey representative if you had known of these places. Yeah, yeah it's like $1,000 a pound. It's fantastic. Yeah. So I, my rant, my shout out, I don't know whether you want to pick either side of this, but it's Bernie Madoff. And uh, for those of you that uh, know or don't know, he passed away this week in prison. And um, 
my my I'll rant all day long and I will go to my grave with this, but I, I firmly still believe that Ruth Madoff was the mastermind behind all of this. And I've said this, you know, probably a thousand times in every time I talk about Madoff. If you really dissect what happened here and you really look at Bernie and you look at how he acted and interacted and how this whole thing came to be, I think it was Ruth and her father that really set Bernie up in business. And I think it was Ruth that really introduced Bernie to all the friends and family, which we now know to be, you know, sort of that phraseology in the Ponzi scene in, in the Ponzi scheme world. But uh, I really do think it's, it's uh, I really do think it was Ruth who, who was the maestro behind all of this. And um, I, I know it sounds kind of quirky, but that's, that's kind of what I believe. And then, you know, on the, you know, on the shout out side, you know, thanks Bernie for it lighting a fire underneath me and uh, allowing me to be a little bit creative and and putting forth the fraud Pentagon and airing that a- adding that competence and arrogance piece to the three other elements that uh, Cressy laid out, which were pressure, opportunity, and rationalization. So, you know, that's my rant and that's my shout out for the week. Rest in peace. Hey, Rosen, you are hitting cleanup today, and you have some very big shoes to fill. I don't know. I'm, I, I got the fungo bat, and I, I think I need like a big slugger here. Uh, it is baseball season again here in America. Jonathan Armstrong, as you've n- nothing like cricket, but we use a bat, and this is very weak sauce. But uh, the Red Sox started off in true f- fashion and lost their first three games. And I said, okay, well, I don't need to take the MLB package. And I think, you know, we're going to get what we deserve, an 0 3 team. And then they reverse course and go nine and three, and I sign up for the MLP ticket, and then they lose. So uh, until we uh, match up against the Yankees, there's really not much know to know about the Red Sox. But uh, I guess I'm still gonna struggle along in my uh, 50th plus year of being a fan. So uh, I'm out on the Sox. Uh, I am going to shout out to Frank Jacobs. You don't know who Frank Jacobs is, or was rather. You probably didn't grow up in the 60s. Frank Jacobs was a mainstay of Mad Magazine. Uh, In my uh, humble opinion, one of the greatest publications ever, which may tell you a lot about me. But he was uh, focused on musicals and lyrics and would parody uh, both theater work and movie work. And one of my favorites was his turning... He and Mort Drucker turned West Side Story into East Side Story. And I won't sing these lyrics, but they go to When You're a Jet. And it's sung by Nikita Khrushchev in the Mad Magazine parody. When you're a red, you're a red all the way from your first party purge to your last power play. When you're a red, you've got agents galore. You give prizes for peace while stirring up war. So uh, Mad Magazine, uh, Frank Jacobs, a big part of my life growing up. And to the extent I uh, still ask what me worry, that's the reason. Uh, So, gents, that concludes uh, this episode of Everything Compliance. I look forward to getting together again in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Tom. Take care, everybody. See you. Stay well. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. We've listed the contact information for all of the participants in the show notes. So if you have any questions on anyone's commentary, please contact them directly. Also, we will be live streaming this show for the foreseeable future 
Uh, please check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook. Uh, I put out announcements with the date and time. So I hope you will join us for a live stream presentation of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Редактор